Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome back to the Jason Tales Outdoor Podcast, where each and every week we have one simple goal, and that is to bring you exciting content that it motivates you, inspires you to get outside and enjoy the great outdoors. My name is Walt, and typically right about now I'd be introducing my co-host Chase, but Chase and I, our schedules here lately have just not aligned, but uh, I am optimistic that he and I will be back on the show real soon. Uh, so I'm saying hey for everybody right now for on Chase's behalf. I know he's out there getting ready for the season opener, uh, which uh, by the time you're listening to this is a matter of like two, three days away. Uh, Zone C is opening up in Florida. We are excited that deer season is here. I'm excited that Chase is going to get out there with the camera this year. Uh, we should have routine content coming to you bringing you live or semi-live because it's never really live, but semi-live content from the deer woods. And I am stupid excited about that. But for now, we are talking podcast, and podcast guest this week is Richard Martinez, a return guest, perhaps one of the quickest return guests we've ever had. Uh, to be honest with you guys, be up front, we actually were supposed to talk about today's topic on the last episode, but I completely derailed the conversation, and we ended up talking about a variety of other things and ran out of time. So we extended another invite, and Richard came back onto the podcast to talk about the Seminole whitetail species, which, if you don't know, is a subspecies of the whitetail unique to the East Coast and South Florida. Um, it's really cool. Most people make the joke that they have webbed toes because they live in very, very wet environments, and uh, Richard hunts them, I think, in some of the most ridiculous terrain that you can. Uh, we break down the biology of the area, the conservation challenges that it has, and I think if you're a Florida hunter or somebody who likes the idea of chasing all the different species of whitetail, this is going to be an episode that really intrigues you. Before we get to that, we do have to thank the people who make this show possible. First and foremost, that's our Patreon subscribers, and we have another uh, new Patreon shout-out, Corey Walker, dude. Uh, appreciate you signing up to support the show. Um, 
if you guys are new to the show, you don't know what Patreon is. It's a crowdfunding source that the money uh, that is raised from it allows us to do more, buy better equipment, travel and do in-person podcasts, travel and do videos, collaborative with people all over the country. And uh, we don't make any money off the show. The money that's raised goes right back into the show, producing more. We've got a Missouri trip that's going to be filmed. We've got some South Georgia hunts that are going to be filmed. Really cool stuff coming down the pipe. And it's all made possible by you guys. There's a 5 and $10 tier, and based on whichever tier you sign up for, you get invited to our digital deer camp, which is a, a little mini forum that we have set up for you guys to uh, share tips and tricks. We've got a whole bunch of different categories in there as well uh, that you guys can go and learn and ask questions. And we have just created this awesome group of guys that uh, just share their knowledge. Everybody's got something to add. And in the end, we have this awesome, rich experience and this awesome, rich dialogue over there. Hats and t-shirts are also available Full disclosure, I am woefully behind on hats because I cannot find them. So if you're listening to the show and you have the hookup on Richardson 112s or Yupong 6606, something like that, holler at me because I am in desperate need to get my hand on some of those hats. But uh, we will eventually address that backlog and get those out to you. Also, check out the website, jasontailsoutdoors.com, T-A-L-E-S, Tales is in the story. We got something really cool about to hit the website you guys are not going to want to miss. I'm not going to talk about what it is. I'm not going to ruin that surprise, but check it out this week. It will land, and uh, I'm excited. I think it's really going to excite uh, a lot of our Florida hunters for sure. We're also working with Spartan Fords this year. If you've ever thought about what it would be like to have a computer monitor deer movement in real time, apply it to whatever standards are happening today, weather moon phase, all that good stuff, rutting activity, and help you make decisions on where to hunt. Spartan Forge is the app for you. And if you are listening to this as of when I dropped it in a couple days, the app is going to hit app uh, app stores all across this country. It's going to be awesome. It's going to knock your socks off, guys. I've been helping beta test this for a couple weeks now, and it is awesome. The amount of attention to detail that's going into this, the accessibility, it is amazing Check it out, SpartanForge.com. You guys know we have been working with Tethered Nation for years now. Darn near since the beginning of the podcast, Tethered makes some of the finest saddle hunting equipment. I've got a brand new Predator XL out there. Uh, I've got the brand new, can't talk about that. I don't think we can talk about that. I got a brand new item out there that uh, soon is going to hit the shelves and you guys are going to be really excited about. But uh, got a Predator XL I'm going to be teasing. Uh, doing a video on how I silence it and all that good jazz here shortly. I love the items from Tethered. If you are looking to get some of the most premium, lightweight, well-thought-out saddle gear, check out tethernation.com. All right, guys, with that, we're going to get on to this uh, week's show. I hope you enjoy it, and next time, you're going to be hearing from both Chase and I. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a return guest. In fact, I think this is the quickest turnaround we have ever had a guest back on the show who was previously on the show. Um, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fall on the sword here, guys. Uh, we, <laughs> we originally asked Richard to come on and talk about the Seminole Whitetail Species. And uh, this may come as a surprise to some of you guys, but I, I like to talk a lot. And uh, I completely derailed the conversation. We quickly ran out of time, and uh, I, I swore we'd have him back on because you guys really seem to like that episode. You like to hear about the South Florida guys, and so uh, I am happy to say that I have anchored him down for another hour or so to talk about the Seminole Whitetail. But before we get to that, dude, how you doing? Good, man. How are you? Uh, I am as at the time which we are recording this two day, days away from deer season, so I think I'm about as right. good as I can get. Yeah, I, I hunted all this weekend. Finally, uh, finally got out there for the first time, and and man, it it felt good. I, I'm pretty excited about the season, and just you know, looking forward to getting back out there again. 
Well, before I hit record, you said you had tracked down three or four Pope and Young whitetail down there, right? Is that or did I misunderstand oh, that? Oh yeah, <laughs> uh huh, yeah, giant two hundred inch deer. <laughs> Mark's gonna hear that and flip. <laughs> oh man, no. Uh, in all seriousness, man, I really appreciate you uh, carving some time to come back on the show because. Uh, the way I found out about you is through BHA, uh, Florida BHA specifically, and uh, Mark uh, sent me a link one day. He's like, dude, there's this cool seminar that's about to be put on um, about Florida whitetail, and uh, specifically a, a, a subspecies that's pretty unique to uh, Florida as a whole, um, and I think that people don't understand is down here, and you, you put on display a, a real thorough understanding of of that subspecies. And I think that uh, a lot of people are going to have a good time kind of breaking down uh, or hearing your breakdown of the Seminole whitetail. So why don't you kind of high level overview? Um, I bet you most people don't even know that there's Seminole whitetail to begin with, but kind of, kind of break down. What are we talking about here? Yeah. Well, well, first of all, I want to preface all this by saying I am not a deer biologist. So, this is this is all very uh, this, this is from the perspective of, of a hunter, right? This is just somebody who just kind of nerds out on this stuff. Um, but one one of the things I find super unique about Florida um, is that we have multiple subspecies of the white-tailed deer all living within our state, um, and we've actually got four of them. Um, we've got the southeastern whitetail, which kind of just creeps in um, to like the very, very northeast corner of the state. Um, we've got the Gulf Coast whitetail, which is probably uh, what you're doing. Uh, you know, most of your hunting is after the Gulf Coast whitetail. Um, we've got the Seminole whitetail, which I'm, I would say I spend all my time chasing, uh, which runs pretty much uh all of south florida and up along the east coast so um it kind of runs i would say uh the the eastern half of the state whereas the gulf coast whitetail kind of dominates the panhandle and, and the western half of the state and uh the fourth one is the key deer which um is on the it's currently on the in the endangered species list so there's no uh, there's no open seasons on the key deer right now, but um, yeah, I mean I, I I think it's super fascinating that we've we've got multiple uh, subspecies of the whitetail all within our state and and you could really you know with the exception of the key deer uh, you know you could bag three of those in Florida. Yeah, can you think of like another state or do you know another state that has that that mix of of so many different subspecies i would yeah i'm not sure where but i know like where the the northern uh whitetail and the central i believe it's the central plains whitetail and the southeastern whitetail there's like a triangle there where they meet um i'm not sure what state that falls under uh but it's probably somewhere still in the south yeah that's that's a good point, and I guess technically coos deer are or cows deer, however you want to go about it. Those are t- still uh, whitetail to do as well, right? Yeah, yeah, so. yeah it's a desert white. Uh, it's another subspecies, so it's similar in size to the Seminole whitetail too. 
Oh, I didn't know that. Learn something new every day. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're pretty small. So, so the whitetail species that we see in the state of Florida, uh, what do the is there other uh, unique character or behavioral differences between uh, the Gulf Coast and the Seminole whitetail that that are readily observable? Uh, well, I think one of the things I could tell you uh, is, is particularly with South Florida is just like how. I would say irregular the rut is or how all over the place the rut is. It's, it's, uh, you know, pretty unique in, in terms of, you know, these deer, uh, they, you know, they breed year round. Right. So, uh, you know, I would say, uh, a month ago I was scouting and I saw a spotted fawn and there was already rutting, you know, rutting going on. Like it's, it's kind of all over the place. They, they can breed at any time. And, and you also, um, you know, can, can, at any given time, you could see, uh, deer with, with hard horns, deer in velvet and deer that have shed, uh, you know, running along together, uh, in the woods. Um, you know, there was a, uh, a, a post going around on, on Facebook, uh, I believe last year of a, of a bachelor group of deer that, that all exhibited that. But, uh, yeah, it's, pr- it's pretty unique. I mean, we've got, a harder rut, you know, we've got like a main rut that, that, you know, typically, uh, comes around July, August. Um, but we've got little mini ruts that, that follow, uh, you know, throughout the year. I think, I think that's the interesting thing is the first time I talked to Mark, uh, on the podcast, he was talking about how, you know, it was not uncommon to have two different deer acting completely different, one in velvet and one in full Mm -hmm. rut coming by at the same time it was kind of just like a a bit of a free-for-all what uh what 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 is the indicator for why that rut is the way that it is i've heard a lot of theories surrounding water is there any any biological credence to that that you found no uh yeah i i couldn't tell you again you know uh i i don't have the background to to be able to to tell you exactly biologically what's going on there um, I can tell you, you know, from like a, like a food perspective, uh, you know, we don't have those times of year where, uh, food gets scarce, right? Like when you're up in the North, you've got the winter, uh, you know, fawns drop based on the availability of that forage. Um, here, you know, we don't have that. We've got, we've got high water and we've, we've got low water, right? We've got our we talked about that a little bit last time with, you know, our, our wet season and our dry season. And, uh, you know, those fawns, uh, have the better chance of survival when the water's lower. So, uh, it loosely follows the, that, 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 you know, low water period, that dry time, but, there's still food, right? Even in the wet periods and in the dry periods, there's, there's food everywhere. There's, there's not an, an abundance, uh, like, you know, when you think of up north in the spring, you know, uh, there, there's plenty of forage right now, uh, you know, at this time of year, as much as there is during spring. Gotcha. It does that, does that kind of impact how you approach them down there? I mean, as, as hunters, is it kind of just chaos and you're sticking to what you talked about in the previous podcast or are you trying to isolate doe groups or anything? 
Uh, no, I mean, we're definitely, you know, like I said, there, there is a main rut and that's, that's definitely probably the best time to hunt when you're just seeing deer and deer moving around and, and, you know, things are happening. Um, you know, like I said, I was hunting this weekend and, um, the deer don't seem to really be like, there's, there's not a lot of does coming into estrus right now kind of like a lull between the ruts, right? So I, you know, I, I saw a few bucks this weekend, but, you know, they seem to be in their feeding patterns right now. And, and you know, they'll pop back into running around and, and, and you know, chasing doe. But like, I think with, with any sort of hunt based around the rut like you're going to get the most exciting time or you know your prospects are going to go up when those deer are really moving around so we're you know it's definitely something still that you know we're we're looking for that and focusing and you talk to other guys and they're like oh the deer weren't really moving around this weekend or they were really moving around this weekend and, and i think that that those breeding periods do have a an impact on that that makes total sense. I think I think one of the coolest things about the the subspecies that we have here is, you know, as you come down out of South Georgia all the way down to the Keys Deer, you see this beautiful example of, per- of Bergman's rule. And if you guys will tolerate me uh, punching outside my my accountant weight class here, uh, the Bergman rule, as I recall, is that uh, the the warmer the climate and the closer you get to the equator, the smaller the organisms, uh, specifically mammalian organisms, become. Um, at, that's mm-hmm. gotta be a cool thing to observe as you kind of come across the state. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, even within the Seminole whitetail deer, right? Like as you move further and further and South, the deer gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And a lot of that has to do with body heat, right? Like if you're a, a big animal, you're retaining heat. Whereas you, as you get smaller and thinner, uh, you're, you're not holding on to as much heat. So it's a lot more comfortable to be a smaller deer, uh, you know, way down in, in the bottom of uh, the Everglades uh, than it would be, uh, you know, to be a giant deer from up north. There, there was a, at some point, um, and I couldn't tell you what years this was, there, there was an experiment done uh, by FWC uh, that brought deer down from Wisconsin, and this was, uh, you know, I, I couldn't tell you exact, maybe the seventies. Um, and they didn't do well, right. Because there were these big deer that just couldn't survive in the heat and they all disappeared. And those, those genetics are basically, uh, gone at this point. Interesting. That's, I, I knew that they had established them in other parts of the country. I didn't know that they had to come that far South into Florida. Yeah. Yeah, they tried to introduce some some Wisconsin deer, and and that just didn't work out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I met, <laughs> they probably walked back to Wisconsin. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so let's kind of talk about this, the the history of the Seminole whitetail because we kind of touched about on this a little bit uh, in the previous episode. But from a conservation standpoint, a lot of their habitat um, has been broken up and and is and has undergone multiple renditions of 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 health so what what was the heyday for like the seminole whitetail species yeah i would say you know probably probably the 70s and 80s really is where things peaked um you know as as sort of like with 
with with the I would say the whitetail uh, populations throughout the country, like you know market and subsistence hunting, um, really took a toll on deer uh, you know, across the country. Uh, you know around the turn of the century, and it you know it really wasn't until we started implementing those game laws and bringing you know in game commissions um, and uh, wardens that you know things started to to turn around but um you know one of the things that's uh particularly unique about uh south florida is, is what happened during um the 30s and 40s um and that there was an actual deer eradication program here um for you know for a while it was, it was probably around uh three or four years um and 10,000 deer were basically exterminated um, because they thought that the, that they were carrying a tick that was being passed on to cattle. Um, ultimately, I think they decided that it really, that I think perhaps the deer could have the tick, but they weren't the ultimate, ultimate carriers of it. And that they weren't really, uh, it wasn't really as, uh, didn't have such a negative impact as they originally thought. So, uh, I think in the end, they, they kind of figured they wasted their time, but they spent years with, with bounties um, on deer down here. Um, and it did a lot of damage, right? Um, you know, going into the forties, um, you know, deer hunting, uh, the deer numbers were, were, were pretty low. Um, and, you know, as things progressed in the fifties and sixties, uh, you know, again, with, uh, you know, the, the, the management systems that were put in place um, uh, with FWC uh, being created or the Florida Game Commission um, at that time, um, you know, that really turned things around in the 50s and eventually, you know, by the 60s, the 70s, and then ultimately the 80s, um, you know, things really picked up. But what happened since then, really, um, and this is sort of where we uh, started going off into in our last conversation, um, was, you know, the, the, the playing with the landscape, right? The, the changing of the landscape, um, uh, restoration, uh, and, uh, you know, basically uh, the fragmentation of the Everglades ecosystem. Um, you know, during the period of, of uh, uh, I would say uh, changing the landscape, um, we made things drier, right? Um, and we also had periods where things were way too wet. Um, and ultimately, you know, that going from one extreme to the other has had, you know, very catastrophic effects on, on the deer herd. There, you know, there are areas that were um, you know, just 20, 30 years ago, great areas to hunt um, that are now uh, really not great deer habitat at all. Um, there are areas that, that, you know, used to be swampland that are now um, great habitat to hunt. So it's been a mixed bag. And then, that, you know, that's sort of like, um, you know, a result of that fragmentation, right? We'd we at one point were a consistent watershed that encompassed all of South Florida, uh, but at this point we're we're kind of like a you know a, a puzzle, you know, if you will. 
That's interesting. I, I've, I'm never, I'm never surprised at our ability to make a situation worse. The idea that we went in and killed ten thousand whitetails in this state is just like a, I, I don't know. Yeah. It, it just seems like it fits right with how we've managed the resource up until now. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, yeah, it's, I don't know. South, you know, South Florida is a, a crazy place. You know, and you. When you think about the invasive species and you know all, all the things impacting us now, like it's it's uh, it's it's had its challenges for decades. So, you know, going back uh, you know since the '50s when things really started uh, you know getting out of control, we we sort of tipped the scale, if you will, um, on on this ecosystem. Yeah, I mean it's. I mean, it's, we've left an indelible mark on it at this point, right? I mean, like, it's not ever going to be. Yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, at this point, look, half of it's gone, right? Right. You know, when people talk about like, uh, you know, dealing with water, uh, uh, quantity and quality of, of, of water here in South Florida, um, you know, we still have the same amount of rainfall. We still have the same amount of water going into the system, but half of that wet, wetland habitat is is basically not there anymore, right? Um, it's my house, right? It's my neighbor's house. It's where I work. Um, it's the towns I go grocery shopping in. It's the farms as well that, that surround us. Um, you know, it's it's, uh, you know, there, there's, it, it, there isn't one boogeyman here. Um, you know, we're basically dealing with, uh, you know, we, we've still got that water, um, but half of the Everglades have been developed at this point. So, you know, I think it's really important at this stage to, you know, protect what we have left, um, even if that means, you know, that what we have left is, is essentially on life support. Um, cause that's where we're at with it. But, um, I think it's, uh, well worth saving and, and, you know, really, uh, special place. Sure. Yeah. I, I could totally see that. I, and I completely agree. It makes me wonder, uh, what the future holds for the Seminole whitetail. I mean, the fragmentation in this state isn't going to change. Um, mm-hmm. do you think that the restoration efforts that we've talked about in the past are going to improve the hunting even if it maybe reduces the overall population yeah yeah i'm uh i'm optimistic um you know i i believe uh you know through good management practices that you know we could really uh preserve hunting i mean i feel like i i'm more worried about hunters in general as as our state changes and the demographics of our state changes um and hunters are seen less favor favorably um, that things will be harder um, to accomplish in terms of uh, wildlife management. Right. Um, you know, one example being uh, for instance, the bear hunt, right. Um, we have decisions that are not based on science, but sort of based on, uh, popular emotional, uh, leanings. Um, and as our state becomes, uh, or changes, um, you know, these things will be more and more challenging. So I feel like I'm optimistic that, 
from a biological uh, habitat uh, perspective um, that we have a better understanding of what we're doing now than in we did 10, 20, 30 years ago, right? We've, we've learned, um, and I believe our state is very progressive in that sense. And I, I, I believe they're even more progressive than some of the federal agencies involved. Like, I think our, the state agencies that we have are, are you know, uh, way ahead in terms of, of good uh, management. And, and so I'm optimistic. I, I feel like, um, you know, we have the ability uh, to create good habitat, um, but it's got to remain important, right? It's got to remain one of our priorities. Um, and so all of that, you know, uh, you know, really comes down to, you know, uh, I don't know, keeping uh, hunters engaged as stakeholders with um, our agencies, um, you know, with with uh, different management areas that, that could be impacted by development, um, you know, just being present and representing ourselves um, when these big decisions are being made. I, I think for me, that's the most important thing um, because if we're left out of that, uh, you know, the priorities will change and shift and, and things won't be managed, uh, you know, probably in the best interest of, of habitat. Sure. You know, it's, it's always interesting to me. Um, the, hunter perspective the, the you know the the outdoorsman perspective of what is the good old days or the heyday um you know duck, mm-hmm. duck hunters will tell you that the heyday was back when the sky turned black with ducks you know you could just throw your barrel up in the air and, and kill a limit of birds and uh you know i i think the ability to to jump around and go state to state to state to chase birds with everything that we've got at our disposal it's kind of hard to argue that now isn't the heyday for waterfowl and so you know, the seventies and the eighties being peak for outdoorsmen, do you think that we, it's possible that we're, we're entering another heyday or, a, or, or that perspectively that it we're in the heyday as much so as it, as it can be given everything we've talked about? Uh, no, I think we have the opportunity to enter a heyday. Gotcha. I think we're, you know, we're kind of like, we're at a crossroads right now where we need to decide um, where are we going to, where are we going to take this thing? Right. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of things have changed, uh, especially with social media. Um, uh, a lot of information, uh, is moving around in a different way now. Um, so, you know, it, it really, it really depends on, on where are we going to take that? Right. Um, you know, you look at some of the pages on Facebook, um, and some of the dialogue that's going on there and, you know, ask yourself, is this really productive for our community? Is this really productive, um, you know, for enhancing our opportunities, um, you know, enhancing habitat? Um, you know, are we really engaging in conversation um, that can help us grow as a community? And that's really sort of like the question um, that we need to ask ourselves, because I see a lot of garbage and then i see also i see you know a lot of positivity in the community you know that there's a lot of good organizations out there that are you know focused on good stuff right now and and trying to promote uh, a culture basically you know kind of like a cultural shift um you know i've 
I've often thought that like the food movement is really important to us, right? Like we've really, we've really got to own that. Um, cause that's one of the things that I think, um, can really save hunting, right? Because it, I think a lot of people, um, even if they don't hunt, can identify with that, right? Wanting to know where your food comes from, um, wanting to be involved in that process, you know, wanting to, to basically, uh, you know, partake in that process by yourself, you know, just in the same way uh, you would want to garden, right? Like that, that's very, uh, like, you know, there, there's a lot more general, uh, you know, people are much more receptive to that generally and the general public that doesn't hunt, um, you know, rather than, uh, you know, uh, trophy hunting per se, you know, we're all trophy hunters, you know, I totally get that. Um, but, but the focus being on, you know, the antler side, the focus being on, uh, you know, the, you know, whatever the, whatever the accomplishment is, right. Whether it be the beard length, uh, whether it be, you know, measuring turkeys or, you know, counting points. Um, you know, I, I think it's a lot, it, it's harder for us to be received well, uh, if we lead with that part of the conversation, not saying that it's not ever important and, uh, an important discussion to always have. Um, but like I said, I, I feel like the food movement is, 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 is going to be, uh, uh, really essential, uh, as one of our first foot forward to sort of like saving our culture and, and kind of like bringing it in a, in a new direction. Well, I think, I think it's ironic that, that you say that given that the, the origin of the hunter was about food, <laughs> you know, it was about, it was about the consumption of, 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 of a meat. It was, it was a food stuff. And so, I look at that and and I want. Gosh, I hate to disagree with a with a guest that I've asked to to give me their time, but I I, I look at that and I wonder though, you know, you look at the dialogue between crossbow and 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 compound bow, and, and then you could even go mm-hmm. further and you could say that the trad game guys are, are you know angry and pissed off at the, at the the guys with the the training wheels. It's like we we subdivide ourselves so heavily. Do you see a world? Oh, totally. Do you see a world where the meat hunter, from a culinary component, could ever get along with the guys who want to kill a big deer but also enjoy the meat? Or do you think that that's just going to become like a us versus them mentality yet again? No, I mean it, it's got look, it's gotta be it's gotta be both, right? Because like I I totally get excited about you know a big buck. I mean, don't get me wrong, like. It, that there's still, you know, complete, ex, you know, uh, interest in like, you know, finding that, that special buck and, and, you know, um, being able to, to successfully harvest them. Right. What I'm describing is like the, the foot you lead with. Right. And, and one of the things that I think an example of that is like outdoor TV. Right. Um, when I was growing up, outdoor tv was like kill shots like you just watch tv and it was just like whoa look at that one and then it was like five minutes later oh i got him you know like it was just like it was just kill shots 
sense, right? It, and over the la- over the course of the last twenty years, now you watch, you know, Jim Shockey and Steve Ranella and and you know, there's there's kind of like a like a bigger picture here in, in all those endeavors, right? Like you've got the big buck, like you've got the trophy, right? But like there's a story arc about, you know, whether it be an adventure or whether it be uh, you know, the meal, like with Jim Shockey, like a lot of it is about, you know, that advent the adventure and exploring, right? And like with Steve Ranella, it's like, you know, you know, finding new places and like meeting new friends and like food, right? If you 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 finish the hunt with like a meal, right? Like this is this is the trophy, right? Um, but with like both those uh, figures, you know, trophy's not gone. It's not you know, it's not this or that, right? It's just the, the foot you lead with. And I think you know we're doing it. I think, like I said with outdoor media like i've seen the change in my lifetime um but we've got to continue because i do see you know if i if i do log on to facebook i do see a lot of negativity um that isn't productive um and that isn't going to help us because things are changing around us like whether we appreciate that or not um we could ignore it and act like it it's not there um you know, or, you know, we can carry ourselves well um, and, you know, be good representatives of, the, of our community because that's what we are. We are a community and everybody within our community is a representative of that community. So, you know, when people act poorly, it reflects bad on hunters in general. You know, it, it just gives like, you know, ammunition to, to you know, the, um, you know, the anti-hunting community to be able to talk about, you know, how horrible the things we're doing are and to draw on like the heartstrings of people who are on the fence. Right. So, you know, that, that's all I'm saying. It's, it's the foot you lead with, uh, you know, uh, it's not a, it's not an either or, but I, you know, I would say that, that, you know, big deer, mature deer um, is still, I think that's, that's very important. I mean, it shows, you know, the, the value of management, it shows good management, right? That was, that was where it began, right? Um, like with Boone and Crockett, um, they, they wanted to show that um, if we were raising big deer, if we were to harvest these big deer, um, it was, uh, uh, you know, a, a show of the success of conservation, yeah, I, I wonder that this will be interesting. I've never really asked this, but do you think that it was a the the shift in 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 hunting content uh, had been the same? Let me try try this again. Hunting content had been the same since the mid '90s. It was like you said, kill shot, kill mm-hmm. shot, kill shot. Now I will say that there were people who did more about that than you know more to celebrate deer camp and the outdoor spirit than mm-hmm. than others. But general broad broad strokes. Sure. Do you do you think that it was the advent of YouTube and and people totally. showing a different like do you think people totally. knew something was missing or they just woke up one day and found something that they related to yeah. better? We're also, you know, being done a disservice by outdoor TV, right? By these by their 
media companies, right? They, these were companies selling stuff. Um, and I think, you know, YouTube and, and, you know, as, especially as, as like cameras became cheaper and like people could get their own stuff and post it, it became easier, right? You, you didn't have to know, you didn't have to learn video editing in school to, to be able to put together a video, right? Like in our generation, uh, we know how to edit videos, right? Um, but our parents, for our parents, that was a profession, right? You, you had to go to school to, yeah. to learn how to, you know, uh, edit something and, and, and put it together uh, into a video. But, but for us, that's something that, you know, the, the computers we buy today are, are, have user-friendly, uh, you know, programs that allow us to do that. So I think, like, putting all those tools in our hands allowed us to speak for ourselves um, allowed us to kind of like, you know, speak the truth a little more about, you know, about what, what those things meant to us and, you know, and sort of like, you know, what we experienced. Um, so I think, you know, that, that was really the turning point. Definitely YouTube. I mean, that's huge. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big hunting public fan. Like I, I think that style is, is, uh, really important. It's honest, right? It's, it's more honest about, you know, uh, having success some days and not having success other days and things go wrong and things go good. Um, and that's, a, you know, a better reflection of, of, of hunting and, and what's actually going on. Yeah. I, I think I like the fact that they tell us such a, they tell such a great story, right? Like you mm -hmm. always feel like you were a part of a story. It wasn't just documenting a sub, like a, a very small sliver of this hugely complex mm -hmm. thing, right? There's there's the camaraderie, there's the solo hunt adventures, there's all these different things that go into what we consider the outdoors. And I think I think what they provide, and I think what we should all try and emulate is that it, it's a process. It, it's 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 a complex yeah. thing that isn't as easily defined as the headgear that a deer's that a deer's got on top of his head. Because I can tell you right now, I come down where you are. I'm shooting the first freaking legal thing that walks out. Like, <laughs> like I'm, it just, it, but that's kind of me anywhere I go. Right. Like it's just, mm -hmm. to me, that's my story. And that's the story that I try and share with people. And I, it, it, there's a couple people who listen to the show. So at least, you know, I know it resonates with somebody, but I do think it's important that we get back to, uh, the outdoorsman, the deer camp that, that that's missing. Deer camp is missing. Mm-hmm. So we, yeah. we, we kind of got off on a tangent there. Uh, this time I get to blame mm -hmm. you. You you started it this time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but let's let's recover and let's let's bring this back to to Seminole Whitetail. I'm I'm curious is are there any defining features on a Seminole Whitetail? Like is is this a a, a biological like we did a DNA sampling to find out, or is this something that we can observe? Uh, well, body size is, is definitely uh, a key feature, right? And, uh, you know, the deer typically, uh, a male averages about 115 pounds and a doe averages about 90 pounds. So that, that's, a, that's quite a big difference, um, you know, from, from something that, you know, in the, in the Midwest, right? Um, and, and in terms of uh, antler growth, this is one of the things that, that I'm, confounded on and i would love to talk to a biologist um 
because like as where 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 I hunt antler size you know doesn't really like I, I've seen very old deer that have very tight like basket antlers right like very they kind of like wrap into themselves um they're very kind of circular um but yet like i've seen if you drive a an hour or two north like you know really wide uh you know tall antler growth like and you know this is like a two-hour difference both being like a seminal white-tailed deer um you know i'm myself curious as to the genetics of what's going on there because not we're talking about the same subspecies we're talking about two hours you know uh north and south of each other um and you do see uh like a typical like or an average uh difference in in the way the the formation of the antlers are you know they kind of like they come in on themselves a little more and, and they're more uh round whereas as you move up the state, it kind of like gets more wider and open. For sure. I, I think one of the interesting thing is um, I read somewhere and I was desperately trying to find it. Um, I've got this book. Uh, you may have this. It's called um, Understanding Whitetail Deer, Florida in the Southeast. It was done by, there's mm-hmm. this, there's this, this heathen organization about North Central Florida, at UF, and um they produced that book, and there was an uh, there was an article that was in the back of it that I found. It was a, a peer reviewed journal, and they uh, they they studied uh, specific deer to see how long before they left being spiked deer, just simple spiked mm. cow horn, which most people would call cow horn. And it was uh, astounding that that it was like two and a half, three before they ever lost their spikes and went into some form of racked buck. I mean, in most parts of the country, I mean, your your year and a half old deer in Missouri is like a solid 80 to 90 inch buck. I mean, you know, it's just, it's <laughs> so contrastingly different and it, it, yeah. primarily due to food, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. I think, you know, nutrition's got to have a, you know, a big part of it. Um, you know, as it gets wetter and wetter, uh, that quality of nutrition, you know, has definitely got to be impacted. And, and I would, I would be really interested to learn more, uh, you know, and from a biologist perspective of, of like why, what, you know, what in the nutrition is really doing what, um, you know, on a biological level. For sure. Yeah. So what is, uh, I, <laughs> This is kind of a teaser because uh, you and I have talked about a study uh, in the previous episode. But I think one of the interesting things to me is that uh, how few deer are killed by humans uh, uh, in that area. I'm going to let you speak to this because I think you've probably read the article more thoroughly than I have. But uh, what was the conclusion of that deer study? Or maybe, maybe give the parameters of that deer study as well. Yeah, so this was the South Florida deer study uh, that was done, uh, I would say, when did they start it? Um, it, it completed in 2019, uh, so I want to say it was 2015, 2014 that it began, um, and it was completed by University of Georgia and they collared 263 deer. Um, and over the course of the study, uh, what they found was that 
panther predation makes up for uh, you know the bulk of the mortality. Um, of the 263 deer, it was 96 um, were killed by panther. So that's that's a 72%. Uh, it was a 72% of the mortalities um, were panther. Um, one was legally harvested by a hunter, and uh, two were, elite, were illegally uh, poached. And then other numbers were bobcat, bear, um, I think, uh, sure, I think maybe alligator might have been in there too. Um, but yeah. Something that was super eye-opening was that hunting really wasn't having that big of an impact on the deer in South Florida. You know, it, it just didn't have well, what people would imagine the impact that it had, um, whereas that those panther numbers were, were pretty surprising. You know, my mind immediately jumps to what role is the hunter on the landscape if if it's not harvesting whitetails, right? Like, not, obviously, we serve a bigger purpose in the conservation um, of whitetails, but, I mean, it doesn't sound like, if you look at those numbers, let's just round up to 100, because, uh, you know, you're, you're three shy, 96 panther, one hunter, and two poached. Uh, of, mm-hmm. of the 100, 1% of the deer is being legally harvested. So if you're looking from a conservation standpoint of whitetails, if you're trying to increase the amount of whitetails in the landscape, limiting a hunter further is not going to improve it. I mean, I mean, that's the immediate. Yeah. And that, that was one of the big arguments. So like, for instance, in, in Cyprus, when they wanted to change um, some of the rules for different units within big Cyprus, um, because the deer herd were declining, wanted to change uh, bag limits, antler restrictions. Um, that was one of the arguments was that look at this study, you know, hunt, hunting numbers aren't creating the, aren't, aren't having a big impact. Um, so it, it's not going to, you're not going to gain uh, much by changing antler res- restrictions or bag limits. Because hunters just aren't successful, and when they're not successful, they're just going to move on and, and hunt somewhere else anyway, right? Like, you know, if the deer aren't there, you're not going to have uh, hundreds of guys in a unit, um, you know, hammering at them. Uh, they're going to get tired of hunting those areas, and they're going to find new areas, and they're going to move on. And and you know, the ones that are left, you know, uh, maybe uh, you know still have hope and and still get the opportunity to go to the those spots that they they love to go to yeah i it, that floors me like it, it really you're not the first person to tell me about this study and i'm gonna mm-hmm. you sent me all 293 pages of it to uh <laughs> to read and enjoy and break apart and i'm truly going to do so i'm looking forward to it um but Man, like my first thought out the jump is what a over-inflated, over-inflated sense of self-importance we must have as as hunters, right? Like, I like how many guys hear that and go like, you know, look around like, oh, I kill deer. Do you kill deer? Like, you know, like I mean, it, it, it's pretty, it's pretty, um, 
I don't know. It feels like an indictment on the outdoorsman. I'm not judging anybody, <laughs> but, but, but do you get what I'm saying? Like it's contrary to the narrative. So we've established that Florida's got some unique opportunities and of those is, is going around and chasing uh, whitetails, uh, a couple different subspecies, which is awesome. I think you said three. Um, my question for you, though, is getting away from the Seminole, have you successfully killed each of the three subspecies in the state of Florida? Negative. I have what? only killed Seminole. I have I have yet to, to go uh, beyond my, uh, I don't know, beyond my two-hour radius or three-hour radius from home. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Uh, so are you are yeah, you a Seminole whitetail elitist? Is that what it is? Is that what you're trying to tell me? You no, just... <laughs> I'm just, I'm, like I, I think I mentioned this the last time we spoke. Like I like deer hunting, right? But it, it's very you know I do it for you know for the for the meat. You know, I, it's a very uh, you know it's a very utilitarian thing for me. Um, I love to eat deer meat, and that and that's why I do it. So it's very functional for me, um, you know, to focus on on the areas around me and to learn them and to be in them year round and kind of like just get to know the areas and and, and you know and then um, you know be able to capitalize on that by knowing where the deer are at and and knowing how they use that that landscape, right? Um, when it comes to turkeys, it's a little different for me, right? I've, I've begun, uh, traveling for turkey hunts. Like it's, it's a, there's a, there's some, there's something else I'm seeking in it, um, beyond the meat. Cause obviously, uh, if you're turkey hunting just for the meat, um, it's pretty rough, uh, you know, uh, compared to what you put in, uh, as to what you get out, it's pretty slim. So, um, you know, for me, turkey hunting is, is, is really uh, more of an adventure-based uh, uh, hobby, um, and I'm kind of a turkey nut, really. Um, you know, they just really get inside my head, and, and I think about it year-round. I mean, you know, I, I was in a deer, you know, in a tree stand this weekend thinking, you know, man, I can't wait till, you know, just like deer season kicks off the cycle right now i was even just thinking about it this weekend like ooh, you know and <laughs> we're deer hunting now but turkey's coming right and and so you know for me it's like i don't know i, I don't have the same uh you know uh urge to travel for deer as i do for turkey but um you know like think you know i'd love to i i really would i i'm I'd love to hunt in the mountains. You know, I, I'm interested in mule deer, you know, elk sounds crazy to me. I'd probably lose my mind over that too. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's just, I don't know. For me, it's about like, for, for me and deer hunting, it, it's, it's more about home. I don't know. It's more like a home range, like, uh, sort of like this, like, um, you know, immersion in like, what's your, uh, what's, what is your native habitat? If that makes any sense. I, I, I can't wait for you to experience. I'm going back next fall. Super excited about that. I've been two years away from it. Uh, but, uh, we'll, we'll get back out there, man. I'll tell you what we need to do. I'm going to come down there, uh, one day real soon. And I want to, I want you to like, you know, 
I want to go the places where you just take your Crocs and you just leave the boots at home like you were talking about <laughs> on the last podcast. You just succumb to getting wet because I just want to uh, get down there and just kind of see what it's like because I've continued to look at it on a map from an aerial perspective, and that place is just wild, dude. Uh-huh. Yeah. Totally. All right, buddy. Well, hang on one second. I'm going to wrap this up. Guys, deer season is upon us. If you're listening from South Florida, you're like, yeah, no kidding, dude. It's been here for a minute now. However, for the rest of the country, we are rapidly approaching it. doesn't matter if you're, if you're listening from the Midwest or from South Georgia. Don't blink. Go shoot your bow. Get ready. Go pack your bags. Get your kill kit ready. You know, Sharpen your broadheads one more time because by the time you're done listening to the podcast, you might just have deer season looking at you square in the face. So until next time, guys, get outside and enjoy the great outdoors. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern, presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.